Hello there and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this episode, we have two co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean Rokunas. I have my friend over there. His name is Hunter Sagona. And with our resident guest host, or guestidence, as I once proclaimed it to be, uh, I have my best friend, Dr. Valerie Mizzullo, with us today. Hunter, Val, and I believe that there are many people that have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide array of artists and composers, dot, 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 dot. And as Hunter always says, we are paid by the dot and everything in between. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 4 in B-flat major, opus 60, is the fourth published symphony by Ludwig van Beethoven. It was composed in 1806 and premiered in March of 1807 at a private concert in Vienna at the townhouse of Prince Lobkowitz. I don't know if that's exactly how you say it, so forgive my German. I speak Italian, not German. Um, the first public performance was at the Burt Theater in Vienna in April of 1808. Right, and in general, this symphony is very sunny and cheerful, with light instrumentation that, for some listeners, recalls symphonies of Joseph Haydn, with whom Beethoven studied the decade before. In a commentary on the symphony, Grove comments that Haydn, who was still alive when the new symphony was first performed, might have found the work too strong for his taste. The fourth symphony contrasts with Beethoven's style in the previous third, Eroica, and has sometimes been overshadowed by its massive predecessor and its fiery successor, the fifth symphony, of course. This symphony premiered in 1808 at the Berg Theater in Vienna, Austria. All right, off we go. And I'll start out by saying um, something that Val read in her notes, as, as we were beginning to discuss this in the introduction, was that this is kind of its own animal between three and five. Um, I think like what, what Val was also talking about, too, was that this, this symphony does get overshadowed by five a lot. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of great material in this symphony. Um, so I'll start out with this, which is the reason why it starts so different, and we might have heard that maybe in a little bit of one, and, and Val and I have talked about this a little bit, but um, we get this nice B-flat sustained, um, and through that, then we get this sort of like sneaking suspicion of, of what might happen, and it's kind of spooky, but it really draws in the audience, and first of all, I'll throw it over to Hunter. What do you think, buddy? Yeah, so for the, this first movement, you know, the first thing that came to mind was, you know, it's Allegro Vivace, so you'd expect, you know, um, I would say maybe not a grand opening, but, you know, it's it's a very delicate, soft opening, um, and I do like the way that, you know, eventually the tempo does pick up and it, it takes its namesake, Allegro Vivace, but I... There's um, in the, what do you call it? The score that you gave us. So it's not going to be the same for all listeners who happen to be following along in their scores. But um, page nine, there's this um, quarter note pattern and it has this like floating sense. So, which is not very specific if you're not happen to be looking at your particular score, but it's this, um, sorry, it's not an eighth, it's a quarter note pattern. 
And it's really quick. It's just like two measures, and then it comes back a little bit later, I think. And it's just a sort of an interruption to the more light aspect of the the particular movement at the time. And then late, you know, later after that, in contrast, there's this bassoon staccato noted pattern underneath these string 16th notes. The whole thing, you know, I think it it adds a really neat feel to the piece. I think. Val read in the description, it's sunny sounding. I think that's a really good word to use for it. You know, Val, what's interesting about the introduction section with the adagio is that Beethoven blueprints the melody for later with the strings with their their pits. Because basically yes. what they're doing is they're outlining, I believe, just a, like a minor chord or some sort of like diminished sound. What did you take away from the beginning? I I think he can't help himself like this is kind of I mean this is a lighthearted symphony it's more lighthearted especially with what it's sandwiched in between right but I think this is kind of a broody intro to a very lighthearted piece or at least that's what I you know my impression when I was listening to it this is a little broody and so sometimes I wonder if he can he just can't help himself he likes writing that way but what I thought was very cool is he doesn't actually commit to the home key. Now, you guys are a lot quicker with with chord progressions and I'm pulling them out and seeing them than I am. It takes me like a microscope and uh, a couple minutes to figure it out. But uh, he doesn't actually commit to the home key until the exposition actually begins. So I thought that was kind of nice. That is really cool. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the, the introduction to the Allegro section in a minute, but mm. there's a really great, and, and you brought up a really great point, which was he doesn't really settle on anything in the beginning. And that is so Beethoven, because you're not like, oh, like, oh where is he going to go? And, and, and that does, for me, remind me that this symphony is like the goth kid in high school, because <laughs> one, one is the nerd, two is the dweeb, Four is the jock, five, sorry, three is the jock, four yeah. is the goth kid, five is the heavy metal kid, you know? Yep. So if if I can just kind of like speak to that a little bit, which is like, yes, this is so gloomy and so sad, and I'll, I'll kind of touch upon that in the second movement because the second movement brings me to tears because that's one of the beautiful, um, I think one of the, the sections that we talk about in really beautiful Beethoven symphonies that, that really doesn't come up in three as much, but like, but, but like, like this move is so, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just gabbing on about two, but, um, <laughs> but what I want to talk about, cause you brought up a really great point is if everybody can go to page seven real quickly, um, we kind of dance around for a really long time in a lot of different keys, but he does eventually lead us back to B flat. And we're thinking like, oh, here we go. But then no, he just, what's so interesting with that is then we get to a E dominant seven sound, which is, which is so beautiful and just so like different because it adds to this mystique of this opening section. And one of the things that I think that, I don't think that this score does really well, but like we can see the shift that is so so cool too like and and when we think about this too like and again i'm super nerdy about this kind of stuff and hunter knows but the way how does one person go from b flat major to e7 dominant something like that like how do we do that like okay so the thing that, that they do is this they they do two different things beethoven does two different things where 
he takes the B flat and literally goes down to a flat seven. And that flat seven becomes the third. And then if he wants to set up the D, the D is already there, which is already in the third of the B flat, which is so interesting. And then what Val was trying to bring up as well was that then we have this transition into A, which then transitions to F, and then we stick with F as our dominant key of B flat, and that is where we begin the melody, which is just, again, and I, I mentioned this in my note, I wrote genius to exclamation marks, you know? So what I, what I find so interestingly about this section is that it's just, yes, it's, it's kind of like the goth kid. It's kind of secretly intriguing, but you don't want to get too close to it because you might want to get cooties, you know? So you don't really know that. But what's so interesting about this section is that it, it, is, it sets the groundwork up so well for the, the main melody of the section. So Hunter, this is my next question to you. Mm -hmm. We arrive on Allegro Vivace. Do we end up in the key of B flat major? At the Allegro Vivace? Yes. Uh, it doesn't. Well, wait. I'm looking at it. Doesn't look like it. It does not. That is correct. Because we start in. The, the dominant key of F. And we stick that way for a really long time. So in a way, this is, this is transition material from the introduction into what is now known as the, the main theme, right? And then the theme begins on the, I believe, on the... Blum, bum, 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 bum. This is two before the repeat sign, and I'll give you a, a, a specific measure. This is on page nine, and you'll see that there's sort of like a shift within the melody, and then we return to this bobbing eighth melody. Before I go to you, Hunter, um, I want to pass it over to Val, because Val, I want to mm -hmm. ask you about this, this opening section. Um, this bubbling energy, where does that come from, or what did you think about this transition from the goth movement to now the exciting hoppy movement well it could be a couple things and i think what's fun is that maybe we don't know a specific answer but i i wrote a thing i don't know if you read it in my notes correct me if i'm wrong but he was commissioned to write this right i think so yes because someone or or prince um whose name i'm gonna butcher as well heard the <laughs> second symphony right and loved it so much so yeah he oh, is it Lovkovitz or something like that? That's Love the one, yeah, yeah. Well, he loved the Second Symphony so much that he wanted him, he he actually commissioned him. So yeah. it could have been just for reasons of, like, homework, and Beethoven is doing what he naturally wants to do <laughs> in the beginning, and he's a little bit darker, and he it's more like his personality, and then he's like, oh, wait a minute, they want it to sound like Symphony Number no. 2. Maybe. Or... And I thought this was really interesting because you guys bring it up a couple of times, especially in the later movements about his hearing loss and maybe he's he's coping. And I wonder if this could also be a little moment of peace and acceptance that he has about everything that's going on in his life. You know, he wanted something because everybody who's gone through something has that moment of peace and, and OK, this is what it is. And then we're going to laugh like he does in the fourth movement. So it could be that as well. And I think that's what makes things like this so fun is that you can 
take it and relate to it in your own way and it can help you you know however you need it to i want to pass it over to you hunter no i agree because you know it's funny this is gonna sound very specific and it's gonna be a little weird but in a lot of the beethoven works for some reason i feel like whenever i hear the bassoon i think of him particularly and I don't know if that's because I have an association from Peter and the Wolf with the bassoon and the old man. Like, and I just think of Beethoven as old man. Obviously, he wasn't always. But um, the the bassoon throughout the course of this piece, he gives the melody at a lot of a lot of times. And it's not written. It's not like a curmudgeonly melody. It's not like an unpleasant melody. So I feel like you know he's living through a lot of the pieces. And so in this particular section, he has it. Um, and then he passes the melody between flutes and the oboes um, and the clarinet. Yeah, yes, get uh, the melody at one point, which is then mimicked by the strings. So I think that, you know, putting himself, quote unquote, in the piece mm. is something that particularly in this movement we see. So I agree with you on that. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. Master of Cycles, ladies and gentlemen, because this is what I think because of what Hunter just said. I think that this is a great predecessor to some really great discussions of our Tchaikovsky, right? Yeah, exactly. We think about Tchaikovsky took all of this material and then said, you know, what if I could just put myself in my music as Val and, and Hunter was just saying? Like, how can I visualize myself? And this is so funny because my whole shtick and my whole anger with Beethoven is that and we talked about this so many times, and I don't know how many times I'm going to bring it up during this episode, but he talks about not being a programmatic person. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I get, and, and here's here's what I get about it, y'all. Which I get, but I don't I don't know that I entirely agree. He he doesn't write. No, and and and, yeah. and you can you can disagree with me or agree with me. No, on no, this, I'm but, saying I agree with you. Right, and and here's the thing, which is like we are talking about the transition into the Romantic era, right? Mm-hmm. And so which he had a hand so, in shaping. Exactly. So here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking is that now that we talk about romantic music and we're talking about the early development of, of this, because this 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 symphony is really deeply rooted in classical roots. It has romantic tendencies. So it's so easy to just kind of stretch that imagination of what Beethoven imagines life to be like outside the music. And I think that's what's so frustrating because you can really find evidence in his music to say, Beethoven, this is you. This is you skipping. This is you super pissed off. This is you super depressed. And then we can make that connection to Tchaikovsky because Tchaikovsky is then like, oh, I'm so depressed. I can put that in my music and make that so real and people will connect with it. I'm angry. I'm just angry, Val. Take it away from me. So <laughs> I want I want to talk this I want to talk about this next section because um sort of sticking with that that B theme now. It's very floaty and Hunter talked about this kind of briefly, which was like the soar ability, the the flight, right? And that's something mm-hmm. that these composers, these hero journey composers were looking for in their music because they wanted to find that. Like how did it feel? Because we talked about that in Hisashi, right? It's something that yeah, we, we as humans can experience. Like, we can't experience flight. I mean, if you want to jump off a building, jump off a canyon, be my guest. But I'm saying that <laughs> expert of figuring that out on your own, you can do that in music, right? So 
that's what I'm going to throw it to you, Val. I'm sorry that that question was so loaded. <laughs> no, I think that's great. Yeah, and there's something that's very vibrant about this, especially the smoother sections. And then you get into the development with all the syncopation, and it's like he doesn't really go where he's expected from a theory perspective. I think he goes to like, actually, I couldn't really figure this out, and you're more the, the theory head, but I'm thinking he's more in B natural instead of like B flat. But, you know, don't so. um, take my word for the theory stuff. That's Sean's thing. But um, I think that that's another thing. Maybe he just can't help himself. He likes to just prolong things, and there's that rebellious nature, yeah. I suppose. Um, but, yeah, there's something very cute and wholesome about this. And I've always had this theory about music in general. So broad answer for a broad question, right? I always, always had this theory about music in general, that the reason we as humans connect to it so much is because it's a place for us to express our more private emotions and what i mean by that is like we don't in casual conversation just bring up maybe that we've been feeling sad but in casual conversation we'll bring up that we've been really happy about something you know and so music is a place where we can all just feel our private emotions and one of them maybe is like private dreams so you mentioned soaring we've all at least as kids or maybe as adults have had um like daydreams about that and about certain things and so I think that's another reason too that this speaks to people and actually going back to what you said about him not thinking he's programmatic maybe it's not that deep but I think that even subconsciously someone like him would have to put a little bit of his life into his music I think that even if he doesn't know it he probably is you know right. yeah and that, and that's so true. Um, thank you for being the spokesperson for the podcast, because when words fail, music speaks, um, <laughs> which, I, yep. which, I, which yep. I appreciate. Um, Hunter, I'll pass it over to you, because I know you and I are, um, I'm not going to say gearheads, but I'll say theory heads. But I'll, I'll pass it over to you, because what I find so interesting about this opening movement, and we talk about the fundamental of, right, we have the themes, then we have the development, and then we have the recap, which is totally the the form for for most symphonies right um this symphony this first movement just dissolves through all of that so mm -hmm. like i don't feel like for me like there there feels like there's a sort of a transition happening in his music where he's like what if it's over here or what if it's over there and we're talking about interpretation right i think that's so important to talk about because that's what we're doing right now. We're interpreting, we're commenting, we're, we're cr criticizing. Um, your thoughts on that, maybe? Well, I think that, you know, given who he was, given when he was living, you know, we talk, we've talked about this before, but the idea of, like, wanting to give the audience something. I mean, this wasn't his most groundbreaking symphony in the world, but you still, when you give people a piece that's new, you want to give them something that's either going to, catch their ear or something that's going to make them think like you said so following the particular standard structure of any symphony at the time you know even stuttering studying under haydn who we know is you know father of the symphony um or no that's handel no haydn haydn um then i don't know i was second guessing myself um you know when you have that as your teacher you are expected to follow certain rules and obviously to distinguish yourself from that person, you have to be a little bit creative. And yet we've talked about how if you want to be accepted at the time, you do have to 
while still following those standard rules, make your own mark to be distinguished from the people who taught you. Um, so I think throwing in these various sections are, you know, that are expected of him are his way of saying to the audience, I know what you're talking about. I know what you want, but here's my twist on it. So when, you know, he sounds like the section might end in that place, you know, and, and it's maybe a, um, a false cadence here or there, or if it happens, you know, to be you, you think the recap's coming to an end and then it moves on to something else. It's just a little something extra or something different. Because obviously, I mean, this this opening is how many pages? I mean, it's not a. Oh, excuse me. Pardon my <laughs> I drained from the heat today. It's a podcast um, staple. Yes. <laughs> There's a yawn somewhere. Now we're doing this earlier than usual too. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's 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 just sort of my my thought about you know if we're talking about form, it's it's pretty standard, but at the same time, you know, it throws something in there for him to distinguish himself dr val i have to ask you this how do you feel about rule breaking i feel that genuinely and i tell this to students the reason that we need to learn the rules is so that we can learn the proper ways to break them so i'm very for rule breaking yes good i like it a lot and i think it makes you unique and then to, to connect that to the discussion about what hunter and i were just having about about this how do you feel he breaks the rules how do you feel he kind of gets away from that because or, or maybe he, sticks with it i don't know i'm sorry well because if there's he establishes where the line is part writing rules right he establishes where the line is and then he just take turn to, like i don't i don't know how to really describe it without like gesturing with my hands <laughs> and the audience can't really hear that but he has the line and he just jumps over it over and over again he stays very close to it but he kind of expands outward if that made any sense at all but um so it's kind of like we're expecting to go back to b flat right after the development but he's kind of flirting with being just a half step away so that that's kind of what i mean he um kind of follows the rules but he does it in his own specific way yeah does he blur the lines between exposition development and recap in your mind well between exposition and development definitely the recap yeah. was a little bit predictable to me um yeah. and every time i've heard this piece the recap is a little bit like what you'd expect the coda or codetta whatever this specific one is however is not quite what you'd expect but the recap is, is normal but between exposition and development yeah i'd say so yeah hunter how do you feel about like what just val just said between the development and the recap do you feel there is that discussion of because what's interesting about that that, that transition into the recap is the melody comes back but everyone plays it mm -hmm. but then immediately after that it's solo voice your opinion. I mean, again, if you are moving, if you're moving to the recap, right, I think, you know, you would expect a recap to be sort of the end of the section. And mm -hmm. therefore, if you're ending a section, generally, you would bring everyone in. So I yeah. think in that way, it's it somewhat conforms to the standard rules. Um, I, mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I don't know if that's, you know, in an analysis of his work specifically, I don't know if that's something that would be considered usual for him or not. But I think that in general, that would track with something that people would expect of him at the time. Right. So, so Val, in that, in that vein, you have this problematic situation with the Codetta. 
how do you how do you cope with that or what do you want to talk about with that well i don't know if it was even necessarily pro problematic i think it was just so um um i guess typical for him because he does this more predictable more maybe predictable is a bad word but more hide any standard normal recapitulation and then the codetta is just all him doing his thing which is prolonging the ending and touching upon all the themes and just sort of i don't know really making us wait keeping us in this constant state of suspense before he finally ends the thing and goes on to movement two right it's it's so funny and hunter you can you can talk about this too which is the way that he ends it is the way he begins it with sort of simply which i think is sort of a classical compositional technique to reuse thematic material from the a section what are your thoughts about the ending well i mean that would definitely show his classical roots because you know the classical era was all about simplicity symmetry um and like you mentioned reuse for the sake of symmetry so i think that when we talk about him moving the genre forward into the romantic era you know that, i think that's why people don't entirely put him in the romantic era is because he does utilize so many of those elements that would keep him in the previous one which obviously he was learning from sort of the one of the foundational people of the, the classical era so of course you use what you're taught and and that sort of distinguishes where you go from there. So he had to, as Val said, know the rules in order to break them. And right. I don't think anyone could doubt that he did know them. Yeah. I'm not sure if we talked about this with two or one Val, but I think you sort of explored upon the fact that um, maybe with two or maybe with one, I can't remember which, but like he just re over, he just kind of just punches the tonic in your face for like a minute. He's like, bum, 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 bum. Um, and you're like, oh, okay, thank God. But no, um, I don't think he does. I don't think he does that in this. But it's more in a way that is appropriate for this symphony. Yeah, I remember saying that, and I think it was about one. I, one, I think okay. I recall that it was during the Beethoven one podcast. But yeah, he dances around it for so long, and then it's like, oh my God, finally! And he just <laughs> gets to the end. Yeah, I, I remember saying that. <laughs> I gotta get a. I gotta get a T-shirt of that with you saying that. Oh my God, finally. <laughs> Um, but that, but that's so good. Um, that to me is sort of the crux of this movement because, um, and, and maybe you guys can finally make this a final, final thought. And maybe this is my final thought, but it feels like this movement reuses a lot of material where, um, the, the development is sort of new, but it, the counter melody is the melody of the exposition. So I don't really feel like he's doing anything. And Hunter, we've talked about this with Bach. I don't think he's doing anything new. I just think that he's throwing something totally different, but with a new spin. So the the term would be um, new wine and old bottles. Hunter, what do you think <laughs> new about wine that? and old bottles? What do you think? That's good. I like that. Okay. And and Val, any thoughts <laughs> about this this first movement? Yeah, I mean, um, nothing new that what we are other than what we've said, but I do. I don't know. I do like this mu movement a lot. I think that of this whole symphony, this movement probably has the most. Um, I don't know, surprises in it. 
if that makes sense. Because <laughs> all of the other movements very clearly have a theme to them, and this is the one that just... It's a very good introduction to everything. But, like, you know, the, the fourth is funny, the third is quirky, the second is, like, a little more somber, but in a playful way, right? Yeah. This one is is a little bit of all of that, so I think that makes it a good teaser for what's to come. It's it's so so beautiful and so amazing because that transitions into surprise surprise because I mentioned this in the first movement that the second is my favorite, um, <laughs> and I and I'll and I'll mention this because um, I cried listening to this movement because it it really is personal for me and I'll, and I'll tell you guys why because the relationship that I feel like Beethoven has with this melody is both somber and happy as well. So maybe in a way, and because I feel like we can't really totally say this, but because I feel like with five, he's like, he's, he's lost his shit with five. He's like, Oh my goodness. I lost my shit. But yeah, there was a period but, of peace that's over at five. But I, but I feel like maybe five was sort of a, a publicity stunt of him being like, oh, I'm so angry that I'm, you know, deaf, whatever. But like four for me feels like he's coping with with what's happening in in the most peaceful way possible mm-hmm. for me, which I think is really sort of a beautiful thing because um, for me, and and I'll say this with with conviction, but I think this movement is called the heart. This movement is the heartbeat movement. Because the bum, 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 bum is kind of quite, is, is quite the, is sort of the, the driving force behind this movement. That might not be the melody per se, but for me, I think that might be the best counter melody that I've heard Beethoven use in, in, in a slow, soft symphony. It is quite punchy, but not punchy at the same time, if you know what I mean where it, it moves right along, it pulsates, and it has this turbulent push to it, but it, it but yet it's kind of still in the background, what I think really makes that up. So I'll pass it over to you, Gail. You're giving me the shady eyes right now. So continuing our conversation from one, we're going into two now, which is our adagio, and we've sort of moved into the key of E-flat. Um, surprise, surprise, I said this maybe three or four times by now, but this is my favorite movement because it is so expansive. It moves. It has this gentle energy, just like a freezing hunter in a zoom, in a zoom box, which is very beautiful. Um, No, I'm kidding. So what I find so turbulent about this music is that, and maybe I talked about this a little bit too, which is like, there's a pulsation, but it doesn't overtake the, the current melody, which we're trying to just discuss. Um, I want to pass it over to you, Val, because something that I find really interesting with this movement is that, um, and, and maybe I talked about this a little bit, but it, it seems like he's coping with disaster. Um, how does that sort of sort of feel to you? Like, we can't obviously discuss history without trying to figure out, like, how he's doing at this given moment in time. But what are you thinking? Yeah, of course. So I bonded with this movement in grad school, especially whenever I was learning excerpts for the first time, because we've got like three or four in here, big ones. I think it's four. But um, anyway, when I was first learning them for the first time, I remember trying to make them painful and trying to make them because it's like the slow movement and it's the adagio and it's Beethoven. 
But then I came to realize that, I don't know, it's it's a little bit optimistic too. Even the slow movement, especially at the end when there's the ostinato starts to bounce a little bit more, like at the very end in the strings, um, there's still the lighthearted feeling to this movement. So I kind of like the way you describe it. it. It could be that this is his way of coping and maybe this is just a moment of optimism about what's going on. Right. Yeah. I, w- I want to pass it over to you, Hunter, before you personally lose lose hearing from maybe not being in this chat anymore. But I want to toss it over to you. What what gives this movement its meaning, its definition? Well, you know, I think that, you know, you mentioned there's a there's a pulsation. And I mean, we've talked a lot and frequently about my love of compound meter. And um, this particular movement is, you know, it is it is written in three. But what's interesting is if you watch it, it's conducted almost like it's in six. You know, he has like that six feel yep. to it. Um, and that, I think, provides the, even even the watcher, not even so much the listener, but also provides the watcher with a, a sense of um, of physical movement. But also you the, the pulsing you mentioned, I notated in, in when I was looking at the score, it's this. The second violins have this like, I almost call it like a skipping pattern. They have like 30 second notes. And I think that gives the fact that even though it's an adagio, there's a movement to it that is propelling it along. And that in conjunction with the fact that he's conducting in what I'll quote is double time from what's written on the page as a player, I think also helps give you a sense of propelling forward. since he's conducting about, you know, double as fast as what's written. Um, but also, you know, there are there are spots I noted, like on page 92, um, where, you know, the horn is accentuating downbeats and, um, you know, a lot it happens on the beat, I think, which also really helps to give the sense of drive as it goes forward. So even though it's adagio, right, it, it's, it's still, uh, it's not, well, I shouldn't say stagnant because that's, negatively connotated it's not uh dirt like true true val i want to pass this over to you because i have a question about something that's really interesting about this movement is the relationship of three to four where we have overlapping rhythms um that adds to the turbulence of this piece it adds a little drive to it um Mm. any thoughts that can sort of continue off of hunter or maybe what i'm talking about um, well, I think the three against four, he's right. I don't think I've ever not felt this in six whenever I was, mm. you know, playing it and learning it. So, yes, he's right. And I think that the fact that it is slow and it is to be felt in six will give him a lot more um, freedom to do things like that, like three against four and all of that stuff. And, yeah, I like what you said. I don't know if I um, particularly need to add to it, but I like what you said about how it adds to the turbulence or in some cases even the more lighthearted feeling it could add to or maybe you have two different characters one is more lighthearted and one is just optimistic i don't know i think i think they're under the same umbrella if that makes any sense but they're maybe different sides of it yeah i gotta ask you about that that moment and i believe y'all it's on a page 108 of the doc but 107 on the page too because that to me is sort of like a moment where beethoven is almost terrified or scared within that melody but 
in, in, in sort of literally and physically too, it's falling. Right, it just keeps falling down. It just feels like there's just so much pressure mounting and there's just so much like weight on his shoulders with that. You know, it's so visual and visceral at the same time. Um, Val or Hunter, any, any, any thoughts about that individual section? Because that is such a, a graphic scene. Just just listening to that and, and goes beyond words of, of describing what Beethoven is understanding. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that is? 108? Yeah, or maybe 107. Because it's that to me is sort of like a, a shift. That to me is like the B section. I'm not sure if you guys agree or not. Well, I mean, it definitely transitions to the minor key, which, you know, it's it's like it really changes the tone of everything we had heard so far like it dis- like not just referencing to minor like distinctively minor like you know it's i think you know if you mention you know val you keep mentioning it's like he can't help himself he's got a brood somewhere so <laughs> yeah. every now and then just to remind you that he's not too happy of a person right and it just feels honestly so turbulent and guys if you can just skip over to maybe 116 117 that area mm-hmm. right there it just there's it just it just i don't know it feels like you're on this perpetual boat that just kind of just feels like it's just going back and forth you know and and Mm -hmm. and that again sort of goes within mixed emotions in classical music which leads to the discussion of the romantic period possibly with like there is happiness but there's also some sorrow in that as well you know what I mean? Yeah, and then mm-hmm. the way the world works is that the two balance each other out. So that could be... Yeah. I think that's a great takeaway from something like that, yeah. Where mm-hmm. you, the composer who's tortured and just, you know... Yeah, it's like we haven't... It's like we ha- that never happens. Exactly, I was just going to say that. It never happens in music, ever. Um, and I, I guess, Val, I just I want to get to those those really great clarinet solos at the end. Yeah. They're, so bre- they're so breathtaking. And I want to talk about that with Hunter as well. So maybe you two can sort of have a conversation. I'll kind of back off. Where is that? Is that 111, 112? Or is that... Because I know there was one there. I so believe... Like the, the, I, a big one believe, closes out the whole thing. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, want, I want to let you guys talk about the ending. I'll let you guys do that. I got yeah, so our, our little moment with the flute at the end there. Little moment. It's kind of a big moment actually but um <laughs> a really yeah. little big moment little little big moment a little big moment um i i don't know i i love the solos a lot i mean especially the one at the very end we've got a point where we introduce 30 seconds and then the flute kind of takes them over and the flute has staccato markings when they take it over so that gives me mixed signals too because it's like maybe you're ending it on an optimistic that that tells me bounce and optimism and then the strings have all these staccatos all over the place too at the end and that's either a really good segue into the third movement which to me is kind of like a segue into the fourth so maybe we're just starting to segue into the third movement i don't know but um uh yeah so it could be or it could be that he's just finally made peace with it but this whole ending to me is very peaceful it's definitely the most uh sorry i wasn't sure if you're waiting for me or sean was responding um (laughs) uh i think it's definitely you know the 
because it is the Adagio movement at the heart of it, yep. it's likely going to be more contemplative and it's likely going to be more, you mentioned peaceful, than any of the other movements because that's the nature of the kind of movement that it is. So if there was going to be anywhere that he was going to sort of have to find peace, it's likely going to be there. And all, and not for any sort of bias, but I find that the clarinet tends to be, a, um, it's such a versatile instrument that it can be very tender and it can be very, um, soft and it also has the potential to be very harsh much like a person it's you know themselves like they it almost mimics an actual human being in that sense so if you need an instrument to convey that sense why not be the clarinet yeah and they say and admittedly they are mostly other clarinet players but um, <laughs> i think all of us fall into the the camp of believing that the clarinet is the most similar to the human voice if you play clarinet you definitely fall into that camp but we've managed to convert other instruments too um but yeah and so it, it's a very human thing that ends and it's a very human moment of peace and acceptance i think too about whatever it is you know we're going through here and it looks like hunter's giving us a thumbs up and that's a really great discussion and i want to i'll throw it over to you Valka, while we're waiting for hunter to come back which is um is that do you feel like that's high for clarinet just i'm talking about maybe 122 123 does that feel high well, for you well technique wise there's a little bit of technique that has to go behind that to make it sound you know very smooth um but now it shouldn't be terribly high it, it's more at the top of our range yeah but it's just a little technique to make that come out. Right. There are little tricks you can use. There are little alternate fingerings you can use. I, there's like a D flat in there that I use differently. So. I cut out again. Sorry. Hold <laughs> back. Note, are we talking about? So we were just sort of finishing up our, our discussion about the maybe the register, the clarinet at the solo mm -hmm. at the end. Um, Val was oh. able to talk about a little bit of that, but. But your your take maybe on 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 the register and the timbre of the instrument at that at that point. Well, no, no, no. I just that's what it's what I was saying before. I think you know the the register and the timbre are one that are very conducive to conveying various emotions, depending on what you're looking to convey. So I think you know we have it's almost like we have a, an octave for each. You know what I mean? It's because yeah. the low is you know very conducive to you know it can be very brooding. It can be very. Um, uh, what sort I'm looking for, pensive, but as you move into the the clarion register and you move into the altissimo register, it's it's like it has a, a brighter sound, a more optimistic sound, playful. So again, it, it's very suited to whatever whatever he's doing, which is awesome. Guys, I cried during this movement because it just it it feels something. It's it's something that we don't usually see in classical music, which is the the strain between the good and the evil um and how we deal with that on a daily basis you know and that's mm -hmm. such a that's such a powerful message to just kind of construct in one's head i mean and this is something that i think beethoven is working through himself like the the hero's journey right the highs and the lows you know and how one is able to live that life um and i feel like there's a lot of discussion in that um, overall, this this movement for me has so many delicate sides of a pulsation, light articulations, just 
again, sort of maybe similar to what Val you were saying about the soaring and the flying and and, and how we feel about that movement. But um, I think there is some sort of like pull and push of the ocean with this this movement, and 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 sort of similar with what I'll talk about with the third movement, which has some sort of momentum and pastoral quality to it. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that next, but I hope it's okay, y'all, because we're going to take a break. Sponsored by the podcast for Spotify for podcasters. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to Spotify for podcasters. You can also search Music Speaks podcast on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Hunter's Favorite, Spotify, and many more. So I have a question. I have a sort of a funny joke for y'all. Um, mm. Why did the why didn't the bouncers let the quavers into the bar? Why? Do tell. Because they were slurring. Ha ha ha! ha. Uh, I love it. <laughs> and as as Beethoven once said, "Don't go anywhere because we have more music on its way." So stay with us. All right, welcome back to Music Speaks. I've got the third movement here. Um, I am very looking forward to talking about the third movement because we've got our little joint Google Doc with all the notes. And um, this is where you guys kind of felt the most passionately about how Beethoven was programmatic. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what it is about the third movement specifically that uh, triggered such a response. But this is the scherzo and a trio. The main theme in the scherzo is bouncy. And honestly, it's kind of cute. I've been describing a lot of things in this whole symphony is cute. Um, <laughs> but the scherzo... You have the hots for Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, the scherzo is one of them. It's very cute. And then the trio feels kind of playful. So this is most definitely a lighthearted movement. And honestly, musically, you know, it's not really anything super radical. It's fairly standard to me, um, unless you guys feel differently about it. <clears throat> to me, it's kind of standard. And I think that it's a really nice bridge between the second movement and the fourth. Because it would sound really, really weird if, <laughs> if we went to the second and to the fourth and without this. So I think this is a really nice, convenient, and just playful way to connect both of them, you know? So I would love to turn it over to you guys and ask you about, um, what about this? So Sean, actually, first, if you could explain what you meant by like an early pastoral teaser, which I like. I, and I agree with. And then also, what about this movement specifically made you guys say Beethoven is definitely programmatic all the time? Oh, this is so this is so him. And it almost in a way, this is very formulaic for the um, the the dance in the the town dance in in the sixth symphony or the um, or I think of the but a it's 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 so it's honestly like it gives me that kind of vibes similar to to the first movement where he kind of bubbles a lot with arpeggios and stuff like for me it, it's so funny and what i find so interesting about this movement is that there is some excitability 
but there is some sort of rash impulsivity to this movement as well, where you have this, um, I'm trying to think of what, what the word is. You have the, um, the versus the, um, it's sort of like, it's sort of, you have this, it's, it's kind of like, and then it returns, and for me, and this this vividly sticks in my imagination because this is Germany and mm-hmm. and Hunter we we might bring the comparison of sound of music into this mm-hmm. discussion too because I could just oh, see God, him like I could just see him skipping through the hills and mountains of Austria to this theme yeah. because he is such a skipper not oh, the sea, yeah. not not the sea type but the skipper as in someone who is skipping through flowers and stuff like that and obviously a nice that really being, Dutch boy haircut you know exactly and exactly what I was thinking too like <laughs> it just it makes it makes so much sense and 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 again like we we talk about this this issue between um you know programmatic and not programmatic but this is so programmatic it drives me crazy because this is him skipping to music it's so funny because it's in three and especially 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 the trio section it kills me val because the trio section sounds so pastoral and so playful and just so like of something where you're you're wandering sort of through like a meadow right it's just it's it's so peaceful it just it's it adds this like flow of beauty and and splendor and like you know all different kinds of giddiness to me and again i i talk too much but pass it over to hunter please because i will keep going well you know i think that two things one it's something you mentioned which is that i definitely think this movement obviously is hearkening back to the first movement um, which, Val, like you said, if you didn't have this one to jump to the fourth, you know, you need something that's going to, co- you know, two and four, I feel like, are more similar in in just, uh, you know, some senses. Well, I shouldn't say it's more similar. Uh, four kind of stands on, you know, the fourth movement kind of stands on its own. But I think if you were to relate two that were most alike, one and three, which provides a separation between two and four so maybe that's what i mean it's not that two and four are similar it's just they're distinctive sections which need to be bookended by something and therefore these you know one and three have to sort of fill those gaps um and then something else sean that you said was you know it's very pastoral and you know as much as we might joke you know hills of austria and them being alive (laughs) sound of music and i think that for someone who write when you write music you know presumably it's like an author you write what you know and if you know settings and landscapes and and you take inspiration from those i think it's hard not to try to characterize them you know if you if you or i sat down and you know we were just gonna try to start writing a piece of music and you know you wanted a sense of calm and you, and you wanted to figure out a, a way to envision that well most people would eventually think of places or people or activities that make them calm you know so by by association i almost want to say like it's programmatic by association because you know 
if if he was thinking of something to inspire him a sense of calm or a sense of playfulness, a, play, a sense of skipping, well, he might have thought of a pastoral scene because in his time in his area, you know, maybe that was something that was known to be those things. So maybe it wasn't directly because he might have been very vehemently against the idea of programmatic, programmatic, blah, 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 programmatic music. But I think it would be hard to deny that he didn't have something in mind while he was writing. Right. You know what I mean? So I think that even if it wasn't intentional, people wind up writing things with inspiration in mind, which wind up making it more programmatic than perhaps they had intended. It is so frustrating, Bill. (laughs) I know he is drawing from real life. Well, for what it's for what it's worth, I I do agree with you. But I think everything is programmatic because I'm not a composer. I'm a performer. And that's my job, or at least that's how I look at my job when I'm presenting a piece, is to take the audience and create an environment where they can relate to it somehow, in some way. So the way you related to this was skipping through fields, and I love that. That That's great, you know? Here's the other thing about Beethoven, is I'm pretty sure at, like, we're never, we're never going to know, and that's part of the fun, and I'm always going to believe that. But I'm pretty sure Beethoven was also, like, the original emo kid. And the emo <laughs> kid is not going to, you know, oh, did you draw inspiration from, I don't know, skipping through a field of flowers? He's going to be like, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that could also have something to do with it as well. Like, he doesn't like programmatic music because he doesn't like it. But I think that it's something, I'm a lousy composer. It's really not my thing. But like I said, I am a performer. And the way I do that is I draw from things in my own life, you know? And it just makes sense to me that composers, whether consciously or subconsciously, will do that too. I don't know what you guys think about that. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. You know, I even going, you know, you go farther back, Vivaldi, right? I mean, he wrote his Four Seasons. You can't possibly tell me that he in mind, he did not have in mind some sort of image or feeling or something subconsciously or or consciously for each of those seasons. I mean, it, it's not just like he decided on a whim to call them that. He obviously drew in for inspiration from somewhere. Um, so, you know, you go far enough back, I think it's just, it's it's natural. Musicians, painters, you know, any sort of performer, they, they have a vision and they have to convey that vision somehow. And right it's the inspiration for the work that they produce. And I, I agree. I think, you know, there's, 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 I don't know how you would say this, programmaticism in everything. <laughs> and that well, was yeah. why, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You can keep going. Oh, I, I was just going to say, especially someone like Beethoven, who's lived so much life and is naturally mm-hmm. an artist. It's not that, I, I feel like sometimes there's a thing about any kind of artist, musicians, authors, painters, uh, whatever any kind of sculptors that they have to have this very tumultuous and and tragedies in their life. And I don't know if that's it. I think they just deal with the human experience um, in this way. Beethoven has lived a lot of life. And I'm not saying his hearing loss wasn't tragic. It, It was. But he's definitely not the only guy in Austria to have lost his hearing. He's just the one who is programmed to deal with it in this way. So I think it just makes sense with all and forget even the hearing loss, other things like um, I was studying say, that wasn't and, the only difficulty in his life. Exactly. Yeah. And then there were things in his life that probably weren't difficult. He had a very 
human experience. And I think it's just normal for an artistic person who is inclined to write masterpiece works like this. It's just normal that they put themselves into it and their experiences. And maybe I'll throw this out there, Val. Maybe we're just all angry that he came up with this without even finding a, a guiding principle to get to this point. You know what I, I mean? I suppose there's that too. It could have been by accident, and then this is our way of dealing with that he is more talented than all of us. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, and that's and that's okay. But the truth also is like maybe one and two. Like one and two for me feels like concert music, right? Yeah. The purpose of the writing was for concert. Maybe you and I will be like, okay, maybe he's doing this and that, but like there's some Mozart that does that. But that's classical music. We're talking about what's so frustrating for me is because we're talking about the turn of the century. Yeah. We're talking about the move into romantic, right? And we're talking about a composer who has lived two lives, both classical and romantic. Yep. And if we're honest, which side do does he like more? We're going to say romantic because he knows how to pull at heartstrings. He knows how to get in there and make our lives messy because of his music. And he draws it from his daily life. So how can we not say, oh, his deafness did not impact the way he wrote his music? Right. Right. And then in that same fashion, and maybe I'm going off too many tangents, but like, how can we not say that that was, was the driven force of, of how he gives us meaning? Or how can we make, for me, like, how did I have that human connection with the second movement? Or how do you have the, your specific connection with this movement? Mm -hmm. So, again, we could sit here for hours and Hunter and I could just give each other blank stares in our Zoom screens. But, like... We could just sit Until here. Until I go away randomly. <laughs> he does. Or, or maybe he just falls off his Zoom screen. But, like, we don't know what it's going to be like. Because I wrote in my notes, and you can see it, Val. It is so obvious. Drawn yep. from real life. We don't know that. But there is an element of it that we feel so passionate about. Because, yes, he is one of the brilliant composers. And if we were going to put composers on Mount Rushmore, he would be the leading figure right yeah you know so here's what's so frustrating for us as, as listeners is that we listen to something like this and we say how can you not compare it to something that he's all that he's going to write or going to be thinking about like right when we get to nine i god forbid i don't know how we'll get there but we'll get there right <laughs> i there is elements of that music that that seems fundamentally human and there's other elements of it that does seem written for a concert, right? Yep. How can you not get the how can you not get energized from listening to Ode to Joy, right? There is an element of love and surprise and confidence that is there that doesn't hit like other works do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just I can't say that we can sit here all day and then be like, oh, you know, that happened and this happens. We can do that in some music and be like, oh, this person did that. This person did that. Um, Hunter, I'll say this because I talk about Bach way too much. But the reason why I have a humanistic re relationship with Bach is because Bach doesn't, doesn't put himself in his own music, but finds ways to recognize figures in his music to make them come out, right? We talk about Brandenburg. We talked about all different kinds of symphonies, right? He draws from real, he draws from the Bible or draws from, from an inspirational source that, that gives us meaning, right? 
So, mm-hmm. again, I'm sorry, Val, because this is your movement. You can talk as long as you want after this. But, but what I'm maybe I'm trying to get at is that we can sit here all day and be like, yes, back to Bob Beethoven did this, blah, 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 right? And he could totally be like, you know, no context. Here you go. Goodbye. Right? Yeah. Well, so I... Go ahead. Go, go ahead, Val. Go ahead. No, finish your thought. Sorry. I thought you okay. were... No, no. My last thing is this. Like, he could, he could give his music to this guy and be like, here you are. Like, I, I wrote this, blah, blah, blah. Right? Mm-hmm. But, like, but as a composer, the reason why we, we go into this business is to make art and to draw from real life and, and give our, our work meaning, you know? So... Again, I don't. Again, I don't want to put words into Beethoven's, you know, um, dead body because he's buried. But you know what I mean. So what I'm saying is, you don't know what he would say, but we do know that this, in some way, affected him. Yes, definitely. And you're right. We don't know what he would say, but I think that's the fun of it. So. All of every note in this whole symphony is motivated by something. Maybe it's motivated by something personal, or maybe it's just motivated by his deadline. You know, nothing motivates you like a good deadline. So maybe that's all it is, too. But um, I think that us knowing the answer to that, or maybe, you know, you you said something before, too, that was kind of cool, like was meant for a concert hall. Pop singers today, they always have that one song on the album that's very obviously meant for the public and for the radio, right? Right, (laughs) And then the rest of it is them. So there's always that one thing that's meant for publicity, and I'm sure that there's nothing new. I'm sure that these composers in this day had that as well. Um, But I think that the point is that we don't know, and therefore we can take away from it whatever we need to in order to cope with our situation, and I think that's what this does. And I kind of love that, because imagine if we did know, imagine if Beethoven wrote a whole, like, I don't know, composer's notes to this and said, this is for the concert hall. This is because I needed something to fill these bars. This is because it needed to be two more minutes longer, you know, than it is. And this is because I was coping with my hearing loss. Like, I think that would would mess it up, because then we'd know specifically what we have to take from it. And it wouldn't we wouldn't have the freedom anymore to take from it what we need to. So I, you know, we can speculate, and I love speculating. By the way, that that's like my thing. I don't think I'd be a performer if I didn't. Um, but we can speculate all day. But at the end of the day, I think it's important that we don't. Well, we're never gonna know for sure. But I think it's that's part of the fun. It's important that we don't know for sure. That's part of the process. <laughs> I want to, I want to say, Hunter, because me and Val went on long arguable tangents would you like to add your our long arguable tangent about this symphony <laughs> no i think you know that that movement i think you guys pretty much covered everything you know the only thing that really stands out to me and it seems beethoven-ish you know the very ending has this really distinctive swell like the measure before it ends maybe i mean it could part of it could have been the performer's choice in the particular one we watched but it's such a dramatic one bar crescendo mm. and it just seems so dramatically Beethoven. Um, and it was something that just sort of stood out to me from the rest of this particular movement because it's something you'd expect in maybe an opener or the finale movement, but putting it here, I think lets the people know like 
I don't know how to describe it. Not like, oh, it's me, look at me, but like, you know, we talked about him conforming versus him doing what people expect, or him conforming and doing what people expect versus putting his own flair in. Um, I think that's one of those things that, you know, he throws things in there every now and then, even if if it's a measure long, just to be like, my style, my way. Um, But then I guess I got to go back to what you want. And Val, to your point, you'd mentioned about the program notes. You wonder, would that have been something that he might have intentionally told the public, like, oh, watch out for this particular, or the performers even, watch out for this note and give it everything you've got just to punch the audience? Yeah, who knows? Right. Or he might have been one of those composers who's like, you don't get to know what was in my head, so I'm not giving you any program notes. Yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling he was more the latter, being the Probably. original emo kid and all. But uh, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's all great. That's awesome. Um, now, having said that, that leads us into the last movement, which is the the one I've I've uh, been gifted. So, um, you know, the first thing that sort of came to my mind when this movement started was, I mean, huge dynamic cr- contrast at the beginning. And it's got high energy fueled by these 16th notes in the strings. And I mean, it's it's very clearly, you know, the, the I don't know specifically, but it reminds me of like, you know, the horse in the runaway carriage. It's just like, okay, go. Um, and I think it does provide that final burst of energy for this final movement. Um, is Was there anything specific that struck you about the transition to movement for either one of you? Do you want to go first, Phil? Um, well, I just like that it's it shows the same energy that the third did. And I mm-hmm. just think it would be kind of funny if you went right from two to four, because it was like we just made peace with our situation and now we're sprinting to the finish line out of mm-hmm. nowhere. You know, <laughs> so I I like that it's such a good continuation from the third and it starts with all of this um same energy and this movement is just funny i think this movement is just the comic relief of everything or maybe like if you're looking at it one way you can say this is dealing with your situation with humor as we do sometimes or as i do sometimes i don't know but you could say that it's that it's the comic relief movement um but i think there's something that's just humorous about this it's like a looney tunes cartoon or something you know yeah my mind goes you know hunter for me um, this movement is sort of a prequel to seven um, of the fourth movement to me because because um, seven is all about war and destruction and just the triumph of like victory. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and Val is totally right. And Val, you and I talked about this a ton because in the first two symphonies, we're like, oh, yeah, Beethoven is just totally making fun of his predecessors in Mm -hmm. this movement right um for me this is where this movement kind of loses me a little bit and i feel like this is kind of where four kind of loses some of its energy because and i feel like it it just it's it's unplaceable like it just this this movement kind of comes out of nowhere for me like it's just kind of like because we're kind of like buddy bada by yump right and it's like, <laughs> and then we're like, we're like, okay, where did that come from? You know? So like for me, and, and and you brought it up really, really eloquently, Val, which was like, what if we did put that transition between three and four? Would the audience be ready for something like that? And, and that is something that I feel like 
is so like so divisive and so different because it's like yes it is it's i think it does do the hilarity aspect but that didn't really for me i kind of i kind of lost a little bit of the the lingo that the the tech that he was kind of going in with this movement um for me i i think that this is kind of funny because two things one thing being that the violins probably hate this movement because it's in a flat key. Gee, I wonder why. And, and they're just kind of going, and it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And Val, I'm not sure if you know of this, but like the person who was playing the bassoon line in this symphony with me, she did not like it at all. She was like, I was like, I'm like, how do you, how do you move your hands that physically fast when you play something like that? I, I, Honestly, I don't think trumpet plays sixteenth notes in this movement. Thank God, because that would be absolutely terrifying. Enjoy it. So, and I want to ask you this because you brought this up. I think maybe maybe in when we were talking about three or two, but um, there is this sort of like out of control train happening with this with this with this movement. Yeah, and uh, from the performance perspective i can relate to the bassoonist because the clarinet has a moment that does the same thing and it's not i i think i told you guys that this was a bit of an everest for me when i was in grad school doing excerpts for the first time because this yeah. it is a pain in the neck and it's got to sound playful and funny and fun it, it can't sound like the runaway train that it is you know um so yeah it's very difficult technique-wise. Right, yeah. And it's a short, it's such a short little blurb, but it's a pain in the neck for the woodwinds, <laughs> and I'm sure the strings as well. So, yeah. Do you think Beethoven delighted the fact that he was writing it for people and then they hated it after with the fact? You know, I don't know, because isn't there that famous... Now, I don't know if this is a true story, but I've heard it forever. It might be like a George Washington and the cherry tree thing. But isn't <laughs> it um, true that when Beethoven was like listening to a rehearsal of the Ninth and the Sopranos were claiming or were uh, complaining, I should say, that it was too high. He was like, well, what do you mean it's too high? So I don't know if he would have cared if that was his attitude. Like, I wrote it, just play it, you know? I don't know if he would have cared if we liked it or not. It's like, this yeah. is what I wrote, so this is what you got to learn. Again, you don't spec... Sorry, go ahead, Hunter. Oh, no, I was just saying, that's how I always say... We've talked about this a couple of times when we play... Um, I'm in a community band, and we do a lot of Sousa marches. Mm. And, you know, you're reading through that, and you're like... Sousa either did not know what he was writing for the clarinet or he did not care what he was writing for the clarinet because, you know, playing those marches and you're up in the stratosphere like that, it's just like, would do that? <laughs> you know, and then you wonder, right, what, did he know that that was not easy for the clarinets? That and he just, like, wrote it anyway and then was like, no, I'm not going to change it? Or was he just like, no, go ahead, play it, you'll be fine. I just well, don't and, think and that's things fair. Things like that. Oh, I'm sorry, Sean. But things no, like no, that, I think, are better examples of it's just not that deep. Like, I don't think he cares. <laughs> I don't think right, he cares exactly. They're just like positions. I think he's like, this is what was in my head. So you're just gonna have yeah. to figure it out. <laughs> I don't think yeah. he delights in our failure or success. I think he's like, well, I just want my symphony played. <laughs> You'll you know, figure you know it out. You know what's funny about? I just I don't. Throughout this entire symphony, I just feel like. Two is the only recognizable melody out of all of them. And, th and this just, to me, just feels like a wash. And just it's just so random, you know? For me, that's true. But I will say that has more to do with um, that's the one that I had to spend the most time on when I was learning the orchestra excerpts and stuff. Yeah. So that could be why for me. But I, 
I would say that's true, yeah. Two has, I guess, the most singable melody. Right. Even it's, if you didn't just know strange. it was. And it's so interesting. I feel like four drops a little bit because of this movement. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, because one, two, three, grand, grand, wonderful. This movement just feels like a joke. You know, it just feels like it's too over the top. You know, Thor, Love and Thunder. I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> so, yes, no, I think that there is this level of just over the topness that just makes it so grand. I want you to read this last thing that you wrote there, Val. I, I, I really like it. Would you mind reading that? About art imitating life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, it's so, in- so interesting. Yeah, so that's where mine was. my mind was going when I was kind of doing this. So... Like I said, I'm pretty sure this was a commission, so there was some homework involved. But let's say, for argument's sake, this whole symphony really is imitating his life and where he is. Right. I would think that it would be reflective of a period of optimism for his current situation. So I did a little math and a little Googling. And by the time he was 44, his hearing was gone. He started losing it around 28, but by the time he was 44, it was completely gone. He was 44 in the year 1814, and this was written, it was premiered in 08, but it was written in 1806, right? Hmm. So he was, which would put him at 36 years old when he wrote this, and he's pretty close. His hearing's probably not good. So maybe he's gone through all the stages of grief, and this is the acceptance part. And then he gets to five. Let's say he's still imitating his life. Then he gets to five and just throws all of that out the window. But maybe this is his little moment of, accepting a situation you know it's crazy that is true again we can't we can't say we can't say programmatic but we right. can't no. say <laughs> from, from real life which is really funny um so oh, always so wonderful to talk to both of you about some beethoven um i'm sure val hunter and i we're so excited to talk about five because um, there's so much to talk about with five, especially with pain and suffering and, and dealing and overcoming. And um, there, there is so much publicity with five. So um, and I think five is the most famous out of all nine. Um, of course, nine being maybe the second most famous, mm-hmm. but but five being such a such a, such a good thing to discuss. Um, and. Being our resident guest host is always valuable. Blow us out of the water. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you more than ever. Our doctor in residence, as always. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to geek out with you guys. I'm glad to. I don't know how I became your resident Beethoven uh, co-host, but I'm glad I did. This is very fun. It's very <laughs> awesome for us too. And I'll pass it over to Hunter so he can say his thanks. Yeah. No. Of course. Thank you as always, fellow clarinetist. It's always a always a pleasure you know have some like-minded people on um and yeah i don't know how you became that person either but i'm glad you i'm glad you did (laughs) (laughs) so glad and uh we'll take it off there folks and uh we'll see you next time so stay for the outro thank you i'm sean Rakunis, and i'm hunter sagona and i'm valerie nizzolo we'll see you next time to discuss percy granger's lincolnshire posey that's a classic you guys are gonna have a lot of fun with that So keep listening to what you love.